Are you willing to examine the traditions and doctrines that you trust in for your eternal salvation? Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I am Don Britton and I will be your host. I will be comparing the modern traditions and doctrines of American Christianity with what the scriptures actually say. You may be shocked to find out that much of what is commonly believed in American Christianity today is nothing more than myths handed down to us by men. So please join me now with an open mind. Hello everyone and welcome back to another Great Deception podcast. I'm Don Britton and today I'm going to explain uh, some of the reasons why we have so many people in the American church today who are not going to be able to inherit eternal life. There are a number of reasons, of course, for this, but and I've covered a lot of them in previous podcasts. But today, the main one I want to address is the so-called sinner's prayer method of salvation. What is a sinner's prayer, biblically speaking? I mean, <laughs> from the Bible standpoint, what's a sinner's prayer? Did anyone in the Bible ever pray a sinner's prayer to be saved? Or did any of the apostles ever lead anyone in a sinner's prayer to be saved? So what is a sinner's prayer? And where did it come from? This is a good question. So I want, first of all, I want to review some of the things that Jesus said about salvation. Jesus said, for, for an example, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that is just praying some words or just speaking some words, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Well, what's the will of the Father? It's to obey God. It's to love God. It's to, be, it's to bear fruit. It's to overcome. Those, that's the will of God, not just to say, Lord, Lord. Jesus also told his disciples, and that, by the way, was Matthew 7, 21, in case you wanted to look it up. Jesus also told his disciples after his resurrection, he told them this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, this is, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance far forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning in, from Jerusalem. That's Luke 24, verses 45 and 40 through 47. Another thing that Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he said this, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So he goes on to say in verse 3, So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Verse 4, But you have a few people in Sardis. And you know, where you put where you put the word Sardis or the church Sardis, you could say in America, in the American church. But you have a few people in the American church today who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He goes on in verse five to say, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So in verse 6 he said, He who has an ear to hear, let him, let, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this warning is for the churches, not the lost people, but for the churches. Well, in a way, it's for the lost people in the churches. 
are the ones who think they're alive, but they're dead. And he says, remember, in one place he said here in verse 3, he said, remember what you have received and heard. So what have we received and heard? Haven't we heard and received in the scriptures that Jesus said, you must love him with all your heart to have eternal life. You must bear fruit on the vine or you'll be cut off and thrown in the fire. You must overcome in order to, to be with him in glory. That you have to bear your own cross, take up your own cross, deny yourself if you want to follow Jesus. I mean, how many things has he said that we've heard before and how little of that is really taken to heart today? Oh, another place Jesus also said in Matthew 24, he said this. He said at that time, referring to the end times now, he said at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Now, if you go look up the Greek word for the many there, the many false prophets, it literally means a multitude. It's a large number. And that's what we have today. We have the whole church world filled with false prophets, false pastors, false teachers, teaching all kinds of falsehoods about salvation. And they're going to mislead many. Again, the multitudes are going to be misled. Matthew 24, verse 12, he says, But because, because lawlessness is increased, in other words, the practice of sin that is in the church, the practice of wickedness and worldliness that's in the church, most people's love will grow cold. In other words, their love for God, their love for the truth, their love for God's word, their love for what's right will grow cold. But he said, it's the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So, okay, let's review those four different scriptures. That was Matthew 24, verse 10 through 13. So Jesus made it clear that salvation would require more than just saying some words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter up in heaven. He says, you know, it's, it's like not, not everyone who says a sinner's prayer is going to go to heaven. In other words, saying the sinner's prayer or saying Lord, Lord, or saying, saying anything, just words, it's not going to be enough to satisfy the requirement of salvation. Jesus also made it clear that there must be repentance from sin to be forgiven of sin. We read that in Luke chapter 24 earlier. And in Re Revelation, if you remember, we read that Jesus also explained how that we must be overcomers. We must overcome sin. We must overcome the world and the ways of the world. We must overcome the flesh and even the devil. Or, we would, or if we didn't overcome, you see the warning was that we'd have our a name erased from the book of life. So he also made it clear in Matthew 24 that we must endure to the end to be saved. So these are things that Jesus said, and there's many more things that he said, and there's many more things that the apostles wrote to us in various letters and the prophets have spoken from long ago that God really requires of his people. It really boils down to a wholehearted, sincere, devoted relationship with God and one of obedience and one of seeking God, one of knowing God, one of walking in his will, one of bearing one's own cross. It's a walk. And that walk must be endured to the end or you will not enter heaven. That's why Jesus said it's a very narrow way. It's a small gate that leads to life and few people there are that find it. So here's the thing. How can praying a sinner's prayer substitute for doing the will of God? Or how can praying a sinner's prayer substitute for repentance of sin or substitute for overcoming sin in the world, like Jesus said in Revelation, or substitute for enduring to the end, like he said in Matthew 24. You know, you must endure the end faithfully, 
bearing good fruit until the end of your life. How can praying a sinner's prayer substitute for that? And see all today, today all the modern tracks that we see that are handed out, you see them in restaurants laying on the little end tables and so forth. And people give them out and people go pass them out and they mail them out and so forth. These modern tracks that I see, they have, they have a printed sinner's prayer on them. And they almost never mention anything about repentance or obedience to God or overcoming the sin or the world or even enduring to the end. They never mention any of these things that's being required to be saved. They simply say, just pray these words, ask Jesus in your heart and you'll be saved, which is totally non-scriptural. It's unscriptural. I even watched just this last week a well-known preacher on TV. He was inviting people to be saved. He was talking about the coronavirus uh, uh, epidemic we had and how it was sort of like a wake-up call. And he was suggesting that maybe, maybe uh, we might need to give our hearts to the Lord and be, re and, and be saved if we weren't. So here's how he proposed that you could be saved. He said, just pray this sinner's prayer. And see, he had these words. He said, repeat these words after me. And, he, and, he, but he never, and, and so he prayed this little prayer thing. He called a sinner's prayer, and, and he never mentioned anything about repentance from sin. He never mentioned anything about bearing your cross or overcoming or enduring the end. He, said, he, he did say, though, that if you repeated these words after him that he had just said, he said, now you're saved, and now you're going to heaven. I tell you, I just wanted to scream, that's a lie, that's a lie. It is a lie, and it's so, it is so misleading and so deceptive to tell people that this is all God requires for them to go to heaven. It's not so. It's just not so. This Bible is full of warnings and instructions uh, about what, it, what God expects from his people, about the walk, about the overcoming, about enduring the end, about repentance, about bearing good fruit. It's just full of those warnings and it's full of those instructions. So, so Jesus did not say that one that the one who prayed the sinner's prayer would be saved. I mean, we just read some of the things that Jesus said, but he said it was the one who endured to the end who would be saved. He also mentioned like in John 15, another place we didn't read that today, but if you go look it up, that you must be faithful to the very end. He said, abide in the vine, which means to continue, don't fall away, bearing good fruit, or, or you're not going to make it. In other words, he says, if you're in the vine and you don't bear the good fruit, you'll be cut off and thrown into the fire. So praying a sinner's prayer can never substitute for repentance from sin and a faithful life of obedience to God that lasts to the end of your life. Praying a sinner's prayer can never substitute for that. Jesus never spoke of a sinner's prayer and never asked anyone to pray a sinner's prayer, nor did anyone else in the whole Bible ever ask anyone to pray a sinner's prayer. Jesus taught that we were to make disciples of men, not to give men a quick and easy sinner's prayer and then tell them they were saved. That, it, was, it was a work. We have to work in people's life. I mean, we have to take them under our wing and teach them. And, and you know, there's training in righteousness. There's teaching about the walk. There's teaching about overcoming. There's teaching about what righteousness is. And there, there's, it's a walk. And, and men have to be discipled in that walk. It is greatly misleading for someone to tell someone that they, since they prayed a sinner's prayer that they're going to heaven. And this will usually lead a person to hell because 
If they think they've already done what God has required to just quote-unquote pray this sinner's prayer, then they're going to have a false sense of security and they'll end up missing the requirements that God actually has for salvation and end up in hell. So again, the teachings and traditions of men have replaced the word of God and truth today. Uh, You see, even back from old times, from ancient times, the scriptures always have instructed men everywhere to seek God earnestly in order to find him. Men were told in the past, they were told to be broken for their sins and to come to the Lord in humility and to seek him in repentance and brokenness in order for them to find him and to be saved. This practice or this method of salvation as this principle was mostly followed all through the centuries until the late 1800s. All the old time preachers, the ones that we heard of in the you know, in, in the in the 16 and 17, 1800s, you know, they're the ones that always told people, for the most part, uh, that they had to come to God this way, seeking him in repentance and brokenness for their sins in order to find him and be saved. No one during these times, before, you know, before the, the 1900s, no one ever told uh, somebody who, no one who preached the gospel ever normally told anybody that they were saved. They actually told them, told the seeker to earnestly seek God until he was reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. Before it was usually understood back then that the process for that could take some time. It could take a, you know, it could be quick. Uh, Sometimes it could happen very quickly or it may take some hours or it may take days or even weeks. There's times when some people and Charles Finney was one of these people. For an example, Charles Finney was a seeker of God. And he used to go to the woods where he lived in the state of New York. He was a lawyer, and this was back in the 1800s. And he would—he was seeking God for salvation. He—he he was in the Presbyterian Church, but he knew something was wrong. He knew he wasn't right. He knew things hadn't happened to him like it should. So he was going to the woods to seek God, and he did this for quite some time before the Lord finally revealed Himself to him, and he was born again by the Spirit. So, so it could take a little while. You know, in every situation, it can be different, but it's not something that's just done in a, in a split second because somebody had you to pray a sinner's prayer. But what happened in the early 1900s? Something changed. There's a guy named Billy Sunday, a preacher named Billy Sunday, who came and changed this whole idea that you have to seek God in order to find him and to come to him in humility and repentance and brokenness in order to be saved. He changed it and reduced this very important time of repentance and seeking of God into this simple thing in his meetings to just come forward and shake his hand. And then he told whoever did this that they were saved. Well, that really that really sped things up. That made things quick and easy, especially for Billy Sunday, because he didn't have to hang around and disciple people and talk to them and work out work in their lives and, you know, and take them under you know, uh, and take them in and start teaching them the word and, and, and helping them overcome. No, sir. All he had to do was just have them shake his hand and he told them they were going to heaven. And so that was sort of the beginning of the process of this sinner's prayer. So what Billy Sunday did, he did have a referral card. And on that referral, referral card was a printed commitment that was to be signed by the new, quote, convert. And then that card was sent to a pastor wherever that, man lived that person lived like he lived a certain part of town was sent to the pastor of that particular area 
and and to, for follow up, and that was it was good to have follow up, and that that part was good. But this printed commitment on the referral card was later taken. Those words that were on there about the commitment were taken, and they were converted into the very first quote unquote sinner's prayer. So after this happened, the new trend by some preachers that began to take hold of this idea was that when people came forward to receive Jesus, you know, maybe in a meeting or a church or a revival or whatever, that they were taken into a room for counseling to see if they were really sincere. And if the counselor decided, decided that they were really sincere, then they were led in a quote-unquote simple sinner's prayer. And they were told then that they were now saved and born again. Well, this kind of took, you know, this kind of took on popularity because, again, it was a quicker and easier way to take somebody to Jesus. So other ministers began to use this method more and more during the early 1900s because it shortened the salvation process from just seeking God with repentance in order to find him. In other words, the time it would take to do that into this quick and easy salvation method and it was, it was really saving preachers a lot of time and effort. So they could now make instant converts. They could just, you know, it's just rubber stamp them. Saved. Now, this was used in the early 1900s for more and more extensively for a period of time. In the 1950s, Billy Graham, which everybody knows Billy Graham, he continued with this same method and had people to come forward to receive Jesus and would have them to go into rooms with counselors to be led in a sinner's prayer to be saved. But as the crowds got bigger and bigger, and more and more people came to those crusades, and it, it went from hundreds into thousands of people, Billy Graham then eliminated the counseling process altogether and gathered the crowds up front, the ones that came forward to be saved. He, he gathered them up front, and then Billy Graham himself prayed the sinner's prayer for the people and then told the people, the ones that came forward, that they were all saved and that they all had eternal life. Now, as a result of this, there was no longer any counseling. There was no, no follow-up. There was no discipling of new converts. And it was later, it has been, there has been some research done on this over the years, and it was later reported that most all of those quote-unquote converts in those big crusades, they either fell away or they never amounted to anything. In other words, they couldn't even be found after a while. Maybe only a very small percentage of them really ever stuck with the Lord. Yet, most of them, those that were prayed this prayer or that uh, accepted the prayer that Billy Graham prayed for them, and others have done the same thing, most of them probably thought they were going to heaven because... Men like Billy Graham and other well-known evangelists and preachers told them they were saved and told them they had eternal life, even though virtually none of the biblical requirements to be saved were met. And to be honest with you, this is a great tragedy, a great tragedy. So today we're told by many preachers and teachers that Jesus has done everything for you and that you don't have to do anything to be saved except to just believe in, believe in and accept Jesus in your heart. But I ask you again, is that what the Bible says? And of course, when they say you just need to believe in Jesus and accept him 
in your heart, they do have you to repeat this so-called sinner's prayer. It's already, the words are already picked out for you. But here's what happened in the situation with Jesus and someone who came to him. And someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Then he, the one who came to Jesus, he said to him, Which ones? That, that is, which commandments? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, and you should honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 19, verses 16 through 23. So here's something for you to think about. If it's as simple as just praying a sinner's prayer, why didn't Jesus just leave the rich young man in a simple sinner's prayer and tell him that he had eternal life? Why didn't Jesus just tell the man to ask Jesus into his heart? That's what we're told to do today. Why did Jesus say that it was so hard for a rich man to be saved if all that he had to do to be saved was to simply pray a sinner's prayer? Why did he say it was so hard? You see, what what would happen today, the vast majority of today's ministers would have told the rich young man that all he had to do was just pray the sinner's prayer. And then they would have told him that he was saved. He could have gone to virtually any ministry or any church in America today, and that's what they would have done. Especially since the man obviously was a good moral man. In other words, he wasn't doing immoral stuff. He wasn't doing bad stuff. He was a good guy, so to speak. But he was also wealthy. And after all, you know, what pastor doesn't want a good, moral, wealthy person in his church? He would have been welcomed in virtually any church in America today. And then even after a little while, they would have given him a position of leadership or of teaching. Uh, and they would have propped him up and, you know, stroked his ego because after all, he's a good man and he's got money. He'd also been given special treatment because of his financial status. This happens all the time. You've seen it. I've seen it. Churches and pastors love to get members who are well off financially. See, these members are much more able to support the pastor's programs and his salary than poor people are. And they're often called or referred to as big tithers. And, not, and have you ever noticed that then when the rich member dies, and I've seen this happen with my own eyes. A rich church member dies, the one who had the business with the money, the, he had the wealth. He goes to the funeral home, the preacher shows up there, the pastor, and he gets preached right into heaven. And the pastor will then brag on him about how great a man he was and how generously he gave to the work of God. And this scenario has been repeated millions of times all over America during the last hundred years since this, quote, sinner's prayer was invented. 
Because, see, this man prayed the sinner's prayer. This rich man came into the church, and he prayed the sinner's prayer, and that's all it took. He was now a Christian according to the standard. In fact, the sinner's prayer has become now the most common method used to determine if someone's ever been saved. The sinner's prayer has become the standard of measure rather than repentance and a changed life that bears fruit. I've known of people who question their own salvation because they weren't sure. You know, they could see kind of how they were. They could see how their life wasn't really like it ought to be. And they would begin to question, am I really saved? And then they would talk to their pastor. And I've seen this happen. You probably have too. And then the pastor would reassure them that they were truly saved by reminding them of the day, the time, when they prayed that sinner's prayer when they were a child, six years old, ten years old, or whatever, and convinced them that because they prayed the sinner's prayer, they were going to heaven. This is such a tragedy. It's terrible to get children or anyone to pray a sinner's prayer. They do this in Sunday school all the time. Sunday school teachers are teaching these little kids they're talking them into, manipulating them into praying a sinner's prayer and then tell them they're going to heaven. It's terrible. It's evil. And then tell them they're saved and that nothing they can do will ever take away their salvation. Tell them it's eternal security on top of the fact they've misled them into a false salvation and then tell them that nothing that they can do will ever take that away. It's such a tragedy. And to use the sinner's prayer as a gauge to determine salvation is totally unscriptural and it's totally bogus, it's totally false because we're supposed to look for a changed life. We're supposed to look for a new creation. We're supposed to look for a transformed life, a life that's obedient to the word of God, a life that's repentant of sin, a life that's bearing good fruit and a life of one who loves God with all of his heart and who loves the word of God. That's what we're to look for. That's called fruit. And I want you to know that I'm not saying that one should not call on the Lord and pray for mercy and forgiveness when, when he needs to be saved. Hey, I did. There's nothing wrong. I went into that closet, you know, 40 years ago by myself and I called on God. I begged of God. I cried. I prayed. I begged God for mercy. I was a very evil person in those days, very immoral. I was 32 years old. My marriage was falling apart. It was my fault. I had, I had done no good in my life. I was crying to God. I knew my only hope was in God. But it wasn't a quote-unquote fabricated, pre-printed sinner's prayer. It was my heart gushing forth. And you see, I'm not saying don't go call on God when you need to, to repent. But you must have a heart change with it at the same time. And most of what's going on today is just a mechanical, meaningless repetition of empty words spoken to people by people and told to say, and they're told they're saved. You see, if anyone is truly repentant, is truly grieved over his sin, even as I was in those days, and is fearful of judgment, yeah, I was fearful of judgment. I, I, I got to where I was afraid to go to sleep at night, afraid I would die in my sleep and end up in hell. Yes, I was fearful of judgment. I was grieved over my sin. I was sick of myself. And I was desperate for mercy and for a changed life. And I knew that I couldn't change without help from God. If anyone is truly repentant, is truly grieved over his sins, is truly fearful of judgment, and is truly desperate for mercy from God, does someone else really have to give him the words to pray? Come on, think about this. It's nonsense. If you were in a burning building 
in fear of your life. Would you have to have someone give you the words to cry out for help with before you could? Come on. You, you, it'd come from your heart, wouldn't it? I mean, it'd be, you'd be serious about it. I mean, you wouldn't have to have somebody tell you what to say. You'd beg. You'd plead. You'd cry. You'd yell. You'd beat on the windows. Help me. Help me. You would say, please help me. Deliver me. Save me. Well, that's what a repentant person does with God. If you had to repeat somebody else's words or read the words off of a dead track or listen to that preacher on TV say, if you, if you, uh, uh, if you repeat these words after me, you know, if you had to do something like that, how real, how sincere would your cry for help be? How real would your prayer to God for forgiveness be? You see what I'm saying? There's no special words God is looking for. He's looking for a heart. He's looking for a heart that's truly repentant and sincere. A heart that's ready for change. A heart that wants to give it up. A heart that wants to submit himself to God with everything. A heart that's sold out to God with, with complete devotion and complete sincerity. That's what God is looking for. The words are meaningless. Yeah, what the words when the words are coming out of your heart, you know, when you're begging for mercy, I don't mean those words are meaningless, but what it is is your heart's right. And the words are not what saves you, but it's the heart that saves you. Because God sees that heart. And he has mercy on that kind of heart. So the so-called sinner's prayer is not of God. And it's never been instituted by God as a method for salvation. The sinner's prayer is just a part of the modern, watered-down gospel that takes away any personal responsibility to seek God, to obey God, to repent of sin, or to bear fruit for God. Or to live, to live an overcoming life. To overcome sin in the world. It takes away the personal responsibility for one to bear his own cross. Or for one to enter by the narrow way. And also for one to endure to the end. That's what the sinner's prayer does. It removes all of that. And it gives people some kind, some kind of a false, quick, supposedly salvation that's all settled by just saying some words, which is total nonsense. I, I do know that some people have been saved in spite of being told to pray the sinner's prayer. You know, it does happen. I mean, some people really were ready for God and they didn't know what else to do but go to the preacher or the church or go meet somebody that's supposed to know how to get them to God. And this person would say, you know, if you'll just pray this prayer, you'll be okay. And they prayed it, but they prayed it because they were sincere. They prayed it because they really wanted God. And they were really saved, but they were saved not because of the sinner's prayer. They were saved in spite of the sinner's prayer, but it was because they had a true heart change and a genuine desire to follow Jesus and please him. And this does happen. So the sinner's prayer won't keep them from being saved if their heart is right with God, but the sinner's prayer won't save them if their heart's not right with God. So the sinner's prayer itself is totally benign. It has nothing to do with it. It's all to do with the heart of the person. But here's what happens to some of those people who were sincere when they prayed that sinner's prayer and they came to the Lord with a whole heart. They get settled down in church. And in the church world, they hear this false grace preached all the time. They hear this easy believism. They hear this message that Jesus did everything for you. They hear the message that just all you got to do is just, just be, you know, just come to church, worship God. And they leave it in this, in this church world that they're sitting in, 
that they're sort of trusting in is leaving out the overcoming and the bearing of fruit requirements and they just settle for going to church on Sunday and doing the so-called worship service. As a result of this, this, sincere, this once sincere saved person becomes lukewarm and will end up in hell after all when he was at, when he when in the beginning he was sincere with the Lord at first. So after hearing the lie that Jesus has done everything for you and that there's nothing else you have to do on your part that you don't have to really overcome, they hear this over and over Sunday after Sunday and all the churches are speaking it, the ministries on the TV and the radio are talking about this false grace. It's all done by grace. You don't have anything to do. You know, it's not work salvation, blah, 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 blah. And so they just relax and they never overcome and they never bear fruit for eternal life. And as a result of much false teaching, they are doomed to eternal destruction because of their lukewarmness and their false security. This same scenario has been repeated over and over again for centuries and it is the most common situation today with almost everyone in American Christianity. That is why all the surveys show that, that approximately 98% of the American so-called Christians live just like the rest of the world. They live in adultery. They live in fornication, homosexuality, pornography, unforgiveness, greed, idolatry, selfishness, pride, lust, gossip, lying, cheating, and with just a general love of the world. These sins and many more like them are all common in today's churches. You don't believe me, just ask the pastors. They know it's there. They deal with it every day. They don't know what to do. They're afraid to tell the people the truth. So they just tell them that we're just all poor sinners saved by grace. That's what they do. So they just excuse it by using false grace to say, oh, we're just all Poor sinners saved by grace, and we all sin every day. Just thank God for grace. So that's what they do. So they water it down. And I just saw a survey just in the last few days about the number one concern of the pastors in America, and the number one concern is about the watered-down gospel. I'm going, well, why? if you're so concerned about it, why don't you do something about it? Because it's the same pastors that are concerned about the watered-down gospel that are watering down the gospel. It's crazy. They're the very ones who've watered it down. Is there shepherds? They're the shepherds of the sheep. They're the shepherds of the church. And they've watered the gospel down. And now they're complaining about the gospel being watered down. So, this terrible condition the church is in today is greatly due to the false idea that just praying a sinner's prayer will get you into heaven. And that it, that is the sinner's prayer, can substitute for all the other things required by the Lord to be saved. Who hasn't prayed the sinner's prayer in the church today? You know, you can't find anyone, anyone hardly who hasn't prayed the sinner's prayer. Uh, if you say some, to something to someone, when did you get saved? And they'll say, oh, I prayed the sinner's prayer back in 19 whenever. Or I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was nine years old. If the sinner's prayer saved people, then you tell me why it is that the church is now so worldly and so full of practicing sinners that are on their way to hell. Tell me why. If the sinner's prayer was working and everybody's prayed it, why aren't they saved? So, making this a little more personal now, what about you? If you're trusting in the time you prayed the sinner's prayer and are not overcoming sin yourself and you're not being transformed into the image of Jesus yourself, then I advise you to repent quickly and seek God.
I would advise you to do as Jesus told the church at Sardis. He said to them, repent and wake up. He told them they thought they were alive, but they were dead. And if that's you, then you may think you're alive, but you're dead. If you do not overcome like Jesus required, then he said he would not, he said he would erase your name from the book of life. But if you do overcome, then he will not erase your name from the book of life. You don't want your name erased from the book of life. You may have started out sincere at one time. You may have really gave your heart to God in the beginning. But wh what are you doing now? Where are you at now? Are you overcoming? Is your soul really not worth seeking God over? Is it not really worth refusing to rely on some man-made method like the sinner's prayer to be saved? Or the doctrines of the modern church that are teaching you lies? If it's true that you're still trusting in the time when you prayed the sinner's prayer, then you still have today to run to Jesus and get right with him. Repenting of your sins and turning to him with all your heart and obedience would be your only hope. So I encourage you to do that. May the Lord be with you on your journey to find him and to discover where that narrow way is that takes you through that small gate that leads to life that only a few really ever find. I just want to remind you then that the sinner's prayer has created countless false conversions. What a tragedy for anyone to think that heaven is waiting for them to only find out in the end that they're being thrown into hell forever and ever with no chance to do their life over again. May you not be found this way in judgment. May you seek the Lord while there's still time. May you repent of your religion if you've believed in the wrong thing. Don't trust in anything but Jesus and what he says and his word. Don't trust in American Christianity. I hope you'll listen next week again to the great deception of American Christianity without Christ. Thank you for listening to the Great Deception Podcast. You may visit my website at www.christianmyths.org for more information, for my blog and for my email address. You can also get my book, The Great Deception of American Christianity Without Christ, on Amazon or on my website. Also on my website, you may download two free chapters of my book. I hope you join me next week as we continue to examine the great deception.